Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, it is great to be with you guys again. We have been in the midst of a series on the book of Hebrews. We started a number of weeks ago. Um, We've entitled this series Anchored because as we have seen through this series and through the book of Hebrews, that there is a current in our world, a current in our culture that wants to sweep us away from our Savior. It wants to cause us to drift away from Him and that we have a need in our spiritual lives to anchor ourselves to the rock of our salvation. And we've been unpacking this truth over a number of weeks as we've marched our way through the book of Hebrews. And today we're going to be in the sixth part of that series as we look at Hebrews chapter 6, verses 11 to 20. But before we look at those verses together, let me pray for the remainder of our time. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for the, the wonderful opportunity to be with this group of people and to have your word with us and to have your spirit present in this room. Father, we are incredibly blessed people to be able to have this moment together today. We pray that you would be honored, Father, in everything that we do today. You'd be honored in the attitudes of our hearts as we we come to your word. You'd be honored in our response to your word as it is shared. Father, uh, you'd be honored in just um, the way in which we get into your word today, that you would help me to be your instrument to, to guide us there. And Father, I pray that you would protect me from saying anything that you wouldn't want said. Father, anything I say that you don't want shared, I pray that it would just quickly be forgotten. But anything that I share that is your word and your truth, Father, I pray that we would remember it, we would believe it, we would walk forward in it in faith, we might be shaped more into the image of your Son. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, every October, there is a particular Saturday that is of great interest to anybody that lives between Norman and Austin. Uh, That Saturday is the national or at least regional holiday that we know of as OU Texas weekend. Um, How many of you have ever been to the OU Texas game? A number of hands in the room. I've actually had the privilege of being Uh, at that game on three separate occasions, and I I feel like in my three times of going to that game, I've kind of seen it all. Um, One time I went, we won big. One time I went, we lost big. And one time I went, we tied big. Um, And so all three of those things have happened in the three times that I've gone, so I feel like I've kind of seen it all. But there is one moment, win or lose, at an OU Texas game that is of uh, particular interest. Um, And it has to do when the game is clearly in hand for one team and the opposing fans begin to file out. If you've ever been to uh, the OU Texas game, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't been, it's a unique environment at the Cotton Bowl. Half of the stadium is wearing this beautiful crimson and cream. Half of the stadium is wearing this incredibly ugly burnt orange. And and we're, we're there in this stadium. And Every play, somebody is cheering, but there comes a point in the game when one team has, has grabbed victory in their, in their hand, and the opposing team's fans have given up, and they begin filing for the exit. And if your team is winning, you do not leave before this moment, because it's the best part of the game to stand there and wave to them as they go. Uh, thank you for coming. we got 365 days of bragging rights. 
Um, there's some nice parting gifts for you as you leave. Um, it's a wonderful moment when you have won the game to, to wait there. But it's, it's fascinating to me that which side you're on, which color you're wearing, so dramatically impacts your experience of that moment. If you believe your team is going to win, then you stay and you cheer. But if you believe your team is going to lose, then you head for the door. And I think that that picture is incredibly significant for us as we read the book of Hebrews, as we contemplate Hebrews 6 together today, and as we talk about uh, our spiritual lives. Because I believe the same phenomena is at play in our spiritual life. You know, if we believe that Jesus wins, and I don't mean just in head knowledge, I mean day by day, we're fully aware, we're, we're clinging to We're in full understanding of the fact that Jesus wins, that he's sitting on his throne right now, that one day he'll return to earth, that we'll stand before him one day in judgment, that the things that we have done uh, in this life that have been in uh, faith will be rewarded on that day. The things that we've done in this life as believers in Christ that have been done in sin, they'll evaporate in that moment. There'll be nothing left of them. If we believe that that day is coming, If we believe that he is victorious and that we will one day stand with him, then we stay in the game. Then we stay engaged in our Christian lives. That we stand and we cheer on our Christian experience. We stay attached to him. But if we ever come to the spot where we are not convinced that he is one, if we ever get to the spot where we begin to think, you know what, Christ, maybe he isn't really going to return. Maybe he's not really in control. Maybe my sins aren't really forgiven. Maybe I won't have to give an account for my life one day. Maybe my life doesn't really matter. If you ever get to a spot where you think that all of that that hope and promise of the future is not real, if you ever get to the spot that you have dismissed all of that, then you know what happens in your spiritual life is you kind of get up and you want to file for the door. You want to slip out at the next time out. Because you've given up hope that victory is certain. You know, this morning as we sit here as a group of believers in Christ, we're all still in the stands. We're all still here, which means that we have not headed for the door yet. But, but I, I believe that in a room this size, with this many different lives, that our experiences are different. Some of us are here this morning leaning in to the notion that Christ is really in control, that he really is going to return, that our lives really do matter. Some of us are leaning into victory, and we're, we're firmly planted with him. And, and others of us have begun to wonder, and we're waiting for the opportunity to slip out and do our own thing because we're not convinced of his victory. You see, hope is a very significant thing significant in our experience of a game like OU Texas. It's significant in our experience of our Christian life. And so as the author of the book of Hebrews picks up a pen and he writes to this collection of believers in the first century living outside the city of Rome, he wants to encourage them to have a hope. And God has preserved this word for us thousands of years later because he wants us to have a hope as well. He wants us to stay in the game, and so he wants to remind us of the certainty of our future. 
And we're going to unpack how he does that, how he talks about hope to us in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 11 to 20. So if you've got a Bible, open up to Hebrews 6, 11 to 20. We're going to spend our time there today. We're going to see a variety of things looking at those verses together. I'm going to read them for us, and then we're going to go back and, and unpack them a few verses at a time. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 11, says this. It says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and a steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now in those nine verses, we're going to see a variety of things that will encourage us to persist in our hope today. The first thing we see is that hope is needed. Hope is needed. Now we see this in two different spots. If, if you were going to, to read these verses through, one thing that you would have to say about this section is this is a section about hope. Three different times he uses the word hope. The, the entire argument in this section is built around believers in Christ having a hope for the future. And it's a hope that is necessary for us. We'll see why in a moment. But he, he says it first in or he says it in, in verse 18 in a strong way. He says in verse 18, he says, We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have a need that to hang on to hope. Verse 11 says it in a similar way. It says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. The author of Hebrews is writing to believers and he says, it is important for you to hang on to hope. It's important for you to continue to believe that the future is better than today. It's important to look forward in our spiritual lives to things that God has promised. And and hope is something that is important uh, for not just for believers, but for anyone. When hope is lost, much is lost. I did a, a Google search this last week for quotes about hope. Uh, and you know what I found was there are a number of great quotes about hope. And you know who said them? Leaders of people who were going through difficulty. You want to find some great quotes on hope, uh, look at the speeches of Abraham Lincoln. The country was divided. It was a difficult period, the Civil War. And Abraham Lincoln talked about hope all the time, looking forward to 
a United States of America. If you want to find quotes about hope, look at Winston Churchill, who in his speeches was constantly talking about hope and resolve as the world was at war and England was on the brink of being taken over by the Germans in the Second World War. And Churchill was always talking about hope. He's always talking about the future. He's always talking about the time when the current conflict would be resolved. He's, he's looking forward. When, when things are tough, we talk about hope. Look at the speeches of Martin Luther King Jr., who saw a country divided racially and looked forward to a day when that would not be the case any longer. They were speeches about hope because the current experience was difficult. Hope is necessary because the world in which we live is not fully realized into the things that God has told us about. As believers in Christ, we need to be reminded of hope because what we see is not all that is. What is is what will be, what Christ has promised that the future will hold. As believers, we need to believe and know that tomorrow will be better than today. St. Augustine, talking about the Christian experience of hope, said this, said, hope has two beautiful daughters. Their names are anger and courage. Anger at the way things are and courage to see that they do not remain the way that they are. What a great quote. Read one more time. Hope has two beautiful daughters. Their names are anger and courage. Anger at the way things are and courage to see that they do not remain the way that they are. See, we have a need for hope in the Christian life because we're living out our experience as believers in a world that has not fully realized the promises of God. God has promised us many things, and yet we don't always see them with our eyes. We don't always experience them in real time. You see, we are people who need hope, and the author of Hebrews writes to the recipients of this letter, God preserves it for us today, and he says, hold fast this hope for tomorrow. We need it because it will help us to stay in the game. Well, what is it that causes our hope to erode? If we're called to have hope, why would we even need to talk about it if we would always have it? See, our hope has ability, we have the ability to lose our hope. Our hope can be lost. Well, how is it that our hope gets lost? I believe that there are two primary enemies to hope. Two things that are like snipers that try to take out our hope. If our hope is a balloon, there are two pins that try to poke holes in the side of it. One of them is our eyes. Our eyes are an enemy of our hope. The second is our calendar. Our calendar is an enemy of our hope. The things that we see cause us to question the world that will be. You know, we live in a difficult world. Things don't always look like they're going well. And our eyes see those things and cause us to question our hope. Our calendars also do the same thing because the things that we're hoping for don't always come as fast as we want and it causes us to wane in our hope. Think about this. Uh, think about it this way. Think about your experience of looking for a job. Maybe you're looking for a job right now. Maybe you were at some point in the past, but when you're looking for a job and, and you mail out a resume to a company with a hope that you'll be hired, if you never get even a letter of acknowledgement back, your eyes are telling you to give up hope in that situation. 
if you go to that first interview and they say, don't call us, we'll call you, and they don't call you on day two, they don't call you on day three, it turns into a week, a month, a year, that calendar that goes through those days that you live through cause you to lose hope that you would ever get that job. See, our eyes and our calendar are enemies of our hope. And those are kind of funny examples. If, if, if that's your experience with a job, maybe you should give up hope that that job will be yours. Uh, but in our spiritual lives, the stakes are much higher, and we do live our spiritual lives many times, all of our spiritual life, looking for things or looking at things that are at, at odds with God's promises or waiting for things longer than we think that we should have to wait. You know, think about the promise that Jesus is on the throne, that God is sovereignly in control of the things that happen around us. It's a wonderful promise that we have in Scripture. It's a wonderful hope for our future. But as we live our lives, as we look around, we see a world that looks like it's out of control, not one that's under sovereign control. We, we look around and we see things like poverty, and we see things like suffering, and we, we see death, and we see difficulty, and we see destruction, and we see lack of resources in different places that cause problems, and we see human trafficking and, and orphans around the world. And, and the, just read a newspaper sometime. Do you know, just a simple survey of the world in which we live, it, it looks difficult. It looks like it's struggling, and it can cause us to want to lose our hope because as we see with our eyes, it looks like the world is spinning out of control. Uh, you're, a little more personally, your world, your life, your family may seem like it's spinning out of control right now. When we begin to see that, over time, it, it wants to take a shot at our hope and belief that God is in control. You think about the situation of reward or consequence for our actions. We want to believe that our lives matter and, and we have a promise that one day we'll stand before the Lord. And yet with our eyes, it looks like no matter what we do, we don't receive immediate consequence for our actions. We can sin and we're not immediately struck dead. We do something good, and it seems to go unnoticed. Because we don't have immediate response to our actions, we, begin, we can begin to lose hope that one day there will be response for our actions, that our lives actually matter. We, we begin to lose hope that one day we'll stand before the Lord, that one day we would be rewarded for the things that we do in trust of Him. And when that happens, we can want ahead for the, for the gate. See, our, our hope can be lost because of our eyes or our calendars. Now, it's not something that's unique to us. It's something that would have been an experience of the original recipients of the book of Hebrews. These people were people who had, uh, were living about 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection and his ascension back into heaven. Jesus said he was coming soon. They believed him, and they were, they were waiting for his return, believing that his return would come in their lifetime. And yet, as the letter was written, Christ had not yet returned. And they might have been wondering, is he really coming back? You know, they had followed him with the belief that following him was a good thing, that it would pay off, that certainly there was eternal reward, but also that following him would 
received some provision, and yet now they were being persecuted by the Romans, and they probably were wondering at some level, is all this really worth it? You see, his delay in return and their experience in this life, their eyes and their calendar were probably causing them to question their hope and its certainty. And so to this people who were waiting for something that had not fully realized, the author of the book of Hebrews gives an Old Testament example to encourage them. And the Old Testament example he gives to encourage them is the example of Abraham. Now, Abraham, um, Father Abraham, had many sons. And, uh, and many sons had Father Abraham. And, but he did not have those many sons early. As a matter of fact, Abraham lived the majority of his life without children at all. When Abraham was in his 70s, God came to him and said, Abraham, of you and your wife Sarah, I'm going to make a mighty nation. Well, there, there's not many people that start building mighty nations through their progeny in their 70s. And yet that's the word that the Lord came to Abraham. Um, and despite the fact that that sounded ridiculous, um, Abraham believed, and he hoped that that's what God would do. And he walked forward in faith and patience year after year waiting for that to materialize. In his 70s, God comes and says, this is going to happen, but it's not till he's nearly 100 years old that Abraham and Sarah conceive a child. See, by most any understanding of Abraham's calendar, the promise at times looked like it would not come true. By most of the things that he saw around him, he would not have produced a mighty nation. And yet God issued a promise to this man, and he believed it, and he walked forward in it, and God eventually provided him. We know the provision that came through Abraham was eventually the nation of Israel and, and ultimately the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. God indeed did build a nation out of Abraham. He indeed did bless all the nations of the world through him, through Christ, and yet he had to persevere in faith and patience for a long time leading up to that. Look at how he says it in verses 12 to 15. He says, So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Who's the picture of faith and patience? It's Abraham. Because for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Abraham's our example because he had to persevere in faith. His hope was materialized, but not until years of waiting. And that's an encouragement to the Hebrews. It's an encouragement to us because our lives have these pins that want to poke holes in our hope that are our eyes or our calendar. And if, if you're sitting here today and your hope has been deflated, because of what you've seen, what you've experienced, or how long you felt you've had to wait. Know that though hope is lost, hope feels like it's fleeting, before you head for the exit, before the end of the game, we need to remember that hope can also be found. And we see that hope is found in verse 11 and then 16 to 20. Verse 11, he talks about how hope is so important and 
hope is found when we have assurance of something. Look at what it says. It says, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope to the end. That word that is translated full assurance also could be translated absolute certainty. If we're really going to have hope that's more than just a Hallmark card, it has to be built in something that is certain. Hope that is based in nothing is foolishness. For Abraham to persist in a belief that he was going to have a mighty nation would have made him crazy apart from the promise of God. But because God said it would happen, it was based in something certain because God was telling the truth. You see, we, if we are to have a hope that persists, if we're to have hope and, and to find it and to cling to it and to hold fast to it, it has to be anchored in something certain. And the certain things that we anchor our hope to are enumerated for us in this passage. One of those things that is certain that we can anchor our hope to is God's Word and His promises in His Word. Verses 16 and 17 say this. It says, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, God made good in his promise. See, Abraham could have a certain hope of a mighty nation and a son because God had promised, and God cannot lie. If God does not lie, then the things he says we can bank on, we can count on, we can have certainty that they will come to pass. Even if years go by without us experiencing it, even if the things we see around us might try to convince us otherwise, we can have a certain hope because God has said things to be so and and what he has said to be so are true because he cannot lie. It may take a while for us to experience it, it may take a while for us to see it, but we can bank on it, count on it, it's going to happen. And it's, it's not something that we share with each other, just like a Hallmark card that's a sentiment with nothing real behind it. We can encourage each other with the promises of God, because if he said it, it will come true. Let me give you some examples, some applications for us. God has promised later on in the book of Hebrews that he will never leave us nor forsake us. If God has promised us that, then we know that he is with us no matter what we're going through. And if he is with us no matter what we're going through, we do not need to be afraid regardless of what we're going through. We don't have to wake up and wonder, is God really with us in this because he has said that he is and he said that he'll never leave. You know, we're going through, and I keep going back to this example, but it's it's where we're living right now. You know, my my wife's got um, headed towards a, a kidney transplant and and uh, we're, we're going through this process, and, and you know, there's times that it's, it's scary, and there's, there's times that you have difficult news, and there's times that you have good news. And it's real easy when the news is good to say, you know what, God answered our prayer. God is with us. But you know, when things aren't good, sometimes we wonder, where's God in this? You know, I don't have to wait for my circumstances. We don't have to wait for a doctor's report. We don't have to wait for blood tests to figure out if God is with us. Because it's not tied to, our certainty is not tied to the things we see with our eyes. 
It's tied to a promise of a God from a God who cannot lie. We've been given a promise of forgiveness. Somebody will come talk to me in the office and say, you know, I've, I've done this and it's difficult and you know, can God forgive and, and all these kinds of things. I, if that person knows Christ, I do not have to say, I wonder if God will forgive you. One thing I never have to worry about. Why? Because God has given a promise that those in Christ are forgiven. We don't have to evaluate the situation to see if it warrants forgiveness or not. We don't have to evaluate the circumstances to see if God is actually forgiven. If that person knows Christ, their sin is forgiven. It's fully paid for in Christ. It's a promise from God. That's the kind of certainty that we can have. And, and the promises of God that, that, that flow from Scripture, we can bank on them because they come from a God who, who cannot lie. We don't have to wonder if they're true or not. That certainty ought to keep us in the stands regardless of the score on the field. Jesus says, I'm building my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's victory that's promised. We should never head for the door. Stay in the game. Stay fighting. We have the promise of the certainty of God's word and his promises. One of the things that we can anchor to in certainty. A second thing we can anchor to in certainty, though, is, is not just God's promises, but, but also his justice. Also his justice. We have a, a certainty of God's justice. Look at what it says in verse 18, second half. It says, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. It's talking about us fleeing for refuge someplace. Now, when we, we see that, we might not initially think of God's justice. We might not think of that because refuge for us means a lot of things. We, we understand that refuge is a place of protection and those kinds of things in our world. But refuge for the Hebrews, and these were Jewish background people, these were Hebrew-speaking people that got this letter the word refuge for a Hebrew was something that was very technical and very specific. When God had Israel occupy the promised land, he had them establish cities all over the country that were cities of refuge. Uh, we see this in Numbers chapter 35 and in Joshua chapter 20. God set up these cities of refuge as places where his people could flee if they ever got in trouble. Um, and it, it was done that way because you can imagine if you were involved in an accident and someone were killed um, and you were accused of committing that crime, you know, in kind of a Wild West kind of justice, a lynch mob might develop and go after you. And the whole idea of a city of refuge was it allowed somebody to flee their city and go to this city of refuge who would protect that person until they got a fair trial. You can imagine if you... Uh, were involved in an accident and someone was killed in Norman and everybody in your neighborhood was ready to come after you with pitchforks and torches and whatever, and you were to flee to Blanchard, the, the city of protection for you. Um, and the, the good people of Blanchard would stand around you and say, you will not harm this person until they have a fair trial. That was the whole idea of the city of refuge. Well, in this passage, it tells us that our refuge is Christ. The idea is that we who have 
run to him, we who are clinging to him, we who know him as our Savior, are protected by him, but will also be judged by him. Our lives matter. And as we run to him for refuge, we'll have to to give account for our lives one day. Now, we oftentimes think of that in the negative. We think of it in terms of sin and maybe eternal consequence for our sin or something like that. If we're in Christ, our sins are forgiven. It's not as though we're going to be separated from him forever, thrown in hell for our sins as believers. That sin is taken care of. But think of it in the positive term. One day, we're going to stand before Christ, and and as our city of refuge, he's protecting us, he's remembering, and he's waiting to reward us for the life that we live now. Uh, Look at what it says back in verse 10. It says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. The whole idea of the city of refuge was these these Hebrew believers were were serving one another, but they might have begun to wonder if that service and that love and that life of faith and, and the positive things that they were doing, if God was even taking notice of those things. Now, sometimes in our lives, um, we grow weary of doing good because we think it's not making any kind of difference. You know, we, we walk with God and nothing really seems to happen. We, we serve somebody, we, we reach out and we help them, and they don't even bother to say thank you. They don't even bother to smile in your direction. Uh, we're serving them, and sometimes they even lash back. We begin to wonder, was that even really worth it? Sometimes we get up in the mornings and we read our scripture and we uh, try to follow the Lord and we feel like it just doesn't go the way that we wanted it to. We raise our kids to, to know, know Christ and yet they, they walk away at different times. And we wonder, you know, is this all really worth it? God, are you even aware of what's going on here? And I think Jesus as the place of refuge reminds us of a future time when we will stand before him and our lives are noticed and they matter. And we need to remember that certainty because if we forget that we will one day stand before him, then we can begin to think that our lives don't matter and we begin to think our lives don't matter, we're ready to head for the door. But when we remember that one day we'll give an account for our lives, that's a positive motivator for us to to cling to our hope, to stay in the game. Your reward is a, is a significant motivator in life. My son, who's five, um, works with me in the yard sometimes. And as he works with me in the yard, uh, I like to think that he does that because he loves me, and I, I think that might be true. He enjoys spending time with me. Um, but also he works with me in the yard because I give him a penny for every stick he picks up. Um, you know, inflation one day will kill me, but right now it's working. A uh, penny a stick. And, you know, he can put an hour in, and it costs me a dollar. This is wonderful. They don't call the child, child labor commission, right? He's five. He's just helping dad. But we, we, we have this system of reward. It's a powerful motivator. And sometimes I think we forget that God uses reward as a motivation for us. We have a certainty that when we run to Christ as our place of refuge, that our lives might be acknowledged one day, that 
the things that we have done as the Hebrews that did not go unnoticed by God. The things we've done that are sinful, they're consumed in a moment. But the things that we have done that are in faith and love, that God will reward us for those in time. Knowing that hope for the future ought to be a motivator for us today. Second thing of certainty, God's justice. But a third thing of certainty that's mentioned here in in the passage is that of God's home for us. The assurance of our heaven. Look at what it says in verses 19 and 20. It says, We have this as a sure and a steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. These two verses, this is where we get the, the title of our series, Anchor. See, our hope for the future is directly attached to Christ. And Jesus has taken an anchor with us attached to it, and he's walked all the way to heaven. It says he walks past the curtain to the inner place. It's an Old Testament picture of the the Holy of Holies, where the very presence of God was, where the Ark of the Covenant was. We know that that was a mere shadow, that that currently the, the, the inner place where Jesus has planted this anchor is the very presence of God in heaven. We have been anchored there. We have an assurance of our future. We have a heavenly home. And this is so significant for us because the reason why our calendar bothers us is because our days are limited. But when the anchor is placed in heaven, the calendar is different. Our world is temporal, but heaven is eternal. See, we have a hope that the promises of God can be fulfilled even beyond the scope of our earthly lives. If we die without having seen all of the promises delivered in this life, we have hope that God will deliver them in time because he's operating off a different calendar than us. I was talking to Andy Borgstrom this last week. He's going to be spending the next year in Ethiopia serving Christ um, on college campuses there. He was talking about how Ethiopia has a different calendar. Um, different, you know, there's, there's like 13 months, one month has five days, all kinds of, it's just fascinating. Um, you know, if, if you're from Ethiopia, I'd love to talk more about the calendar because it's just really interesting to me um, how, how all this played. The, the days are, are numbered differently in terms of hours, New Year's in September. There's all kinds of things. But it, but it got me thinking, I was just even between services thinking about this passage and thinking about how we have a calendar that's different. We live in a world with 365 days and a life that's going to have a finite end and we're going to be buried in a box. But we serve a God and we have an anchor in a place that has a different calendar, an eternal one, that gives God all the time to make good on the promises that he's given. And you know what? He's invited us there. He's anchored us there. And he plans to deliver on all of his promises there. You see, we can have certainty of hope because we have certain things to anchor to, not just sentiment, not just wishful thinking, but we are anchored to the promises of God who cannot lie. We're anchored to the, the, the thought and the, and the reality that one day we'll stand before him, and we're anchored to the fact that we have a home in heaven, and the calendar is just different than ours there. Knowing those things, we're encouraged to stay in the game. 
We're encouraged to not head for the doors. We're encouraged, as it says in verse 11, to have an earnestness. Verse 12, to not be sluggish. We're, we're encouraged to stay engaged in our Christian lives because we have a hope that is certain. And if we have a hope that is certain, it should impact our lives. I'll give you a couple things to think about as we prepare to close. One thing to, to think about is this. Think about if you were certain that Christ were to return on Friday, this, this coming Friday. It's just absolute certainty he's going to return on Friday. How would you live between this moment and then? Now, before you, you begin to take this too far, don't, don't think of it in terms of, okay, I'm going to quit my job, I'm going to get takeout all the time or whatever. You know, think about it in terms of you're going to keep your normal conventions. You're going to keep your, your normal job, and this is the rest of the encouragement of Scripture. You're going, to, you're going to live out your life in the same places where you currently are. But what difference would it make to the way that you lived out that life in the places you are if you knew that Christ was returning on Friday? Because we have a sure hope, not that he's returning Friday, though he might. We have a sure hope that one day he will return. And even if we die before then, that we will stand before him one day. We have a hope for that. How would knowing Christ's return, how would that impact the way that you live out your life now? Second thing to think about. Imagine that your life, every action, every deed that you did was immediately recompensed for what it's worth. Imagine that everything you did, if it was a sinful action, was done in the flesh, it was immediately consumed in flames. If it was something that was done in faith, it was immediately rewarded with eternal blessing. I mean, just every moment, you're just getting that. Imagine if you had that kind of payoff, how would that impact your life? Think about it this way in terms of an investment. If you're going to buy stocks with money, and when you bought one stock, you immediately were given $10 back for every $1 you put in, how would you deal with that stock? you'd go all in, right? Think about this. If, if you bought other stocks and it immediately was set on fire in front of you every time you bought it, how often would you invest in that stock? Well, apparently, if we're all in the stock market all the time, right? No, just kidding. Um, the, but, but there are, if we were immediately recompensed for our, our investment, how would that impact us? If we're immediately recompensed for our deeds. We saw last week in 1 Corinthians 3, that the things that we do in the flesh, they're consumed in fire when we stand before the Lord. The things that we have done in faith will stand and persist and be rewarded. How does understanding that future hope impact the way that you live today? See, we, we lose sight. We lose sight of the fact that the future is different than the present. And when we do, we risk heading for the doors. We're all still here. And guess what? The game is clearly won. Let's stay engaged and celebrate the victory of Christ as we await the fulfillment of these promises and the certainty of our hope. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. And uh, as they come up and prepare to lead us in a closing song, I want to just make a comment about this song that we're going to sing. Um, this song is called Hear Us From Heaven, and it talks of 
um, the fact that we have this difficulty around us and God hears from heaven and he's able to act and respond. But I want you to think about as we sing this, the fact that the reason why he can hear us from heaven is because there is a chain that is connecting us to that place. It's sure, it's stable, and it's a connection that was made in Christ who went there in advance of us and planted us there and wants to draw us home. He hears us from heaven, and he can act and respond. Please stand and join us as we close in prayer.